From Deus, humanity-centered artificial intelligence, my name is Natalie Post, and this is the Human-Centered AI Podcast. We feature inspiring stories of people who are paving the way and shaping the future of artificial intelligence in ways that are human, humanity, and planet-centered. In this episode, I am joined by Ricardo Baeza Yates, who's the Director of Data Science at Northeastern University in Silicon Valley. He was previously the CTO of Intent, a semantic search and natural language understanding technology company. Prior to that, he was VP of Research at Yahoo Labs. In this episode, we talk about bias, and in particular, bias on the web which has been a central topic in Ricardo's research for the last 12 years. We discuss the many different types of biases that are out there, zoom in on bias on the web, and in particular, bias in recommender systems. And finally, Ricardo will share his valuable advice about what we can do to become more aware of our own biases. I hope you will enjoy this episode. So let's get into that. Hi, Ricardo. And welcome to the Human-Centered AI Podcast. I'm very excited to be talking to you today. Um, but for our listeners who may not know you yet, could you perhaps start by giving a little bit of an introduction about yourself and also your background? Yes. Uh, first of all, thanks, Natalie, for the invitation. It's, I'm excited too. So I'm a computer scientist. Uh, I did my PhD uh, almost, well, a bit more than 30 years ago in computer science in in the University of Waterloo in Canada. Uh, I started working in search there, and then uh, I guess most of my research career has been on search technologies, but then uh, very f fast I went to, to data, to data mining, uh, to anything related to what is called today data science. So I think really I'm a, I'm a data scientist uh, the last 30 years, even when the term didn't exist already. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit more about your current research? Because you've really focused on researching bias, but what has motivated you to do that and take that direction? That, that's a, a, a bit of a difficult question because I think I started working in bias even before I realized that I was working in bias. So I think my first paper on bias was uh, like 12 years ago. 12 years ago, and and I think what, what was the motivation at the time was more like uh, like trying to make systems uh, to be fair and to be like really aware of the real world and not about just the data they received. So I was looking at uh, basically at uh, feedback loops at the time. I didn't know that was so important uh, later because the, my main work today is also in feedback loops. But I think only, I would say only like four years ago, I realized that a lot of things I have done were about bias in different ways. So bias of content, bias of, of interaction, uh, bias on data coming from people. So I put everything together and I started to talk about bias on the web because there are many biases that, that we are not aware of that basically are tampering our behavior. And then people should know about them. And I'm, I'm, and I'm not talking about the standard biases that you uh, have in society, which are also very important. A lot of people are working on them, like gender bias or race bias or sexual orientation bias or, or religious bias. 
So I'm talking about things that are more subtle that happens between systems and people when they interact. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, as we're going to be talking about bias today, um, maybe a good place to start from is just by expanding a little bit on the definition of bias. So could you start by perhaps giving a bit of an explanation about that, what bias is? Yes. Uh, so I think there is even bias on, on that, on the defining bias. <laughs> Because it's um, depending, yeah, depending if you talk to a statistician or to sociologist, they will see bias as different things. And, and for some people, something that, that we call bias, maybe not bias, is just uh, It's just the way that, that things are. For example, uh, first of all, I, I have to say that bias is not necessarily negative, could be positive, but we have a bias to, to talk only about the negative cases because these are the ones that, that basically harm people. But the truth is bias is a completely neutral term. But when it's positive, we don't use it much. For example, uh, bias in some sense is any, any uh, systematic deviation from... Uh, some reference uh, point of view. So one problem is what is the right reference point of view? So this is the first problem of bias. For example, when we have this podcast uh, live, what should be the right percentage of women listening to this podcast? It should be half and half? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's something that, that certainly some topics interest more men and, and other topics interest more women. So, so for example, there are many reference points that we don't know. This is the first problem with bias. We don't know what should be the right answer. But most of the time we know that we are, we are in the wrong place. For example, if, if you say percentage of women in STEM, like in, in science and, and engineering, we know that we, should, we, we need more. So we know that in the, the direction we need to walk. So this is important. We need to go in that direction. And later we will have to decide uh, what is the right point. But we know the way to, to do it, and then we can do affirmative actions, which will be another kind of positive bias, to change that. For example, to have uh, some uh, places only for women in engineering. That, that was done, have been done in some countries, and that has had a big success, because not only you get more women because of these uh, places, but also you get more women because of the perception that you are doing something for women, and then more women apply, and because... Uh, intelligence is, is, is basically doesn't depend on gender, you get more women uh, accepted. So these, these are the powerful things that affirmative actions do that, that, that change the perception of people that, that is easier to get in and then more people apply, in this case, women. So, so this will be more like the statistical definition. And, and there are many that really are cultural. So basically it depends on, on, on your education, Uh, your religion, your parents, uh, your language. And, and for example, uh, words like accountability that we have in English, we, you don't have it in Spanish. And I think it's not so easy to find in other languages because maybe we don't want to be accountable. So that's a bias in the language. So there are things encoded. So in some languages, you have hundreds of ways to say uh, uh, no. And in other, other languages, they don't have the words to know because they have never seen it. So all, this, all the differences that we have are encoded in the language. And the last class of biases is the, the maybe the most dangerous one is, is cognitive bias. So basically these are your own cognitive biases. For example, if you have 
a gender bias that is your own cognitive bias. If, if you're racist or you're xenophobic or you're homophobic, these are your cognitive biases. And one problem with that, and in general about bias, is that people is not aware of that. So awareness is the first thing you need to to do to fight bias because some people don't realize that they are saying something racist until someone says, well, you know, when you said the word black or when you said chair, chairman, chairman or not chairperson, you are doing uh, uh, gender bias. And then people realize it. And then some people do the conscious uh, effort to change that, to change the way that they talk, to change the, the things they say uh, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what would you recommend to people to become more aware of their biases? Yeah, this is, this is the, the, I guess the, the, the key, the key thing that, that you have to do. So, so the first thing is that you need to be open to learn, open to, 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 to disagreement, open to hear other opinions, because then you can do, do like uh, checkings. You can say, okay, what I think is uh, really fair, for example, I have this, uh, for example, this bad feeling about immigrants. Is this uh, fair? Uh, many people don't want to do that, but basically in some sense you need to get out of the, the famous bubble that you have. You have a cognitive bubble, and then if you are exposed to, to, to more knowledge or, or to more travel, for example, you see the diversity of the world and, and, you, and, and your bubble um, expand. So someone said, um, if you read, then then you lose a lot of your biases because you read things that you are maybe don't agree with, but then you read good arguments on, about why you are wrong. And the same with traveling. I mean, you, you live a wonderful life until when you go to India and see how many people is living a terrible life. So you need to basically be aware of the reality and not of the of your perception of your reality. And sadly, many people today have a perception of the world that is not the, the, the right one. Yeah, no, clear. Yeah, and so maybe to go a bit back to um, bias and the different types of biases that are out there, because you already touched upon a number of them. Um, but what are kind of the most prominent ones? So the most prominent ones, as I, as I said, are the ones that are cognitive. So basically, they are basic intrinsic to every person. Perhaps for me, the, the most dangerous is, is confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is, is the one that when you see something that is aligned with your beliefs and you see it, you immediately believe on, on, on that because basically agrees with you. And, and this is what uh, false news uh, use. So false news use... Uh, information that is false, but basically agree with what the people wants to hear. Like, for example, we don't want more immigrants. Or, for example, uh, we don't want more women at work or things like that. And they agree, okay, ah, this, this person is, is finally saying the right thing because he's thinking the same as me. It's like, I'm right, everyone else is wrong. So this is a basic, a basic bias. But now there are more than 100 cognitive biases. Uh, this is a codex that you can find in the web uh, of more than 100. And this is a work of psychologists where they have basically uh, learned uh, all these things, but there are many more. Uh, for example, that you can uh, anchor things. So basically, you, uh, you, is there information bias? That there are so many that, that even they are 
classify in the taxonomy. So it's very hard to, to, to use them for a normal person because there are too many. But for example, we'll say if you at least work with confirmation bias, try to try to to listen to listen to other opinions. So for example, if you read a new trying to do some fact checking, or for example, see what other people think and then contrast your thinking with uh, that other people. So one problem today is polarization. We don't hear the other side. So we don't want to hear the people that disagree with us. And that's a problem because then we don't know we don't know the size of the universe, so we don't know uh, how diverse is the is our thinking. And then you really believe that uh, all the people think like you. And in many elections, we have seen this, that, that what you think is not what, what happens. Yeah. 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 And I think especially right now, as um, well, as we're spending a lot of our time online, I'm really curious to hear more about how bias kind of gets amplified almost in our present day digital society. Yes. So, so, so most of the bias today comes from with the data. So, and comes from, from the interaction with people. So, basically, the data that comes from people um, implicitly encodes the bias of that peep of those peep people. For example, let me give you an an, 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 an example that is not online. And, and then you see how in the online world this can get amplified. Uh, a few years ago, they, they did a study on, on bales in, in New York. So basically, uh, the judge has to decide if you have bail or not when you are accused of some uh, uh, criminal, like basically it's a felony. And then uh, they took all the data they had from from millions of uh, cases, and they only gave the, the the machine learning model, so machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence, the machine learning model, the only information about, about the person was the age. So basically, um, they didn't know the names, they didn't know the gender, So all, all, although most of the people are men, uh, the people that get to court. Um, so there's no way to, to, to know the gender. There's one not to, way to, to know where the person lives because if you know where the person lives in the US, maybe you can guess the race and also you can guess the salary very well. So the only thing was the age and then all the information from the case. So the, the model that, that learned all that was more racist than the judges. So basically racism was encoded in the case data was not too much, it was a little bit more, so it was amplified. But then something interesting happened, and, and which I think is important to what we're talking, is that the model, even though there was more raci- racist, was more just than the judges. And why that happens? Because basically there's another, another thing very important that, that, that exists when people take decisions, which is not biased, and which is called noise. So basically, humans are noisy in the sense that in the same situation, they don't always do the same. So, for example, there are studies that show that if you see the judge after lunch, surely uh, maybe the, 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 the sentence will be worse. And if you see it very early in the morning after breakfast, maybe the sentence will be uh, better because the judge is happy. So, a lot of... The sentence depends on the mood of the judge. 
And what is the interesting thing about um, algorithms is that they always do the same in the same situation. So they don't have noise. So algorithms may have bias, but they don't have noise. And sometimes noise is worse than bias. Because basically, uh, in the case of justice, noise is the one that basically makes justice also not reliable and not just. Because if you have exactly the same felony, you shouldn't go like a double time to, to, to the prison only because of that. So this is a very good example of how things get amplified, but, in, but at, at the same time, uh, algorithms can be more fair in the sense that they do the same for the same situation. So in, in some sense, okay, yeah, it's racist, but at the end, at least it's fair in the cases. Of course, you don't want to, to, to have a, a racist algorithm, so you can always mitigate that. And for example, you can say, okay, uh, let's, let's uh, try to mitigate that bias, and, and then we have uh, something better than any judge. It's not racist, and also doesn't have any noise. So does bias affect people in general, or are there very specific groups of people that are generally affected? That's a great question, because that's a, really my, my, uh, my line of research. I'm interested in biases that affect all people, and there are many. So, for example, um, this is more related to what is called uh, nudging, so digital nudging. So basically, how uh, small things, small details in the screen uh, where you interact with uh, digital systems, basically uh, modify your behavior. So, for example, in the Western world, we always look first to the top left corner because that's the way we read. So, so for example, if you put something prominent there, uh, you will see it first. So, I can make a page that basically I can predict in which order you will read it. And then if I can do that, then I can put the important things in the right places to, to make you look there. For example, and that's how, how advertising in the web works. So it, you put it in, in, in the right places. Uh, but then you have more subtle things. For example, um, typically the interaction data is used uh, in real time uh, by the system to, to personalize your experience or also your historic data. So basically it tries to, to know what you want. But that means that you can only use the data that you put there and, and then we'll create something called the filter bubble or an echo chamber, basically with only the things that you have seen and will be very hard to show you something new because it's not in the data that you haven't seen, but if you see it, you like it. And that's why recommended system use this idea of quality filtering that we try to use things that are that uh, people that are similar to you like, so we can break the, this uh, bubble. However, the, the problem is still there because you can only click on things that you see in the screen. And those things are decided by the algorithm. So basically, that, that creates um, one of the worst biases is popularity bias. So basically, you are shown things that all people like, but maybe you would like to see things that you like, not what all people like. Yeah, so so what is really the impact of bias in those recommender systems? Like, how does that... So so the, the first impact, um, so the, the, the first bias there is what is called exposure bias. So basically, you can only click on things that are exposed to you, and then all the other things that are 
not there, you cannot click on them. So the first thing is, is not uh, something that affects the user, but may affect the, 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 the publishers or the producers or the suppliers of whatever you are interacting with. So, for example, maybe uh, a store will never be shown to you. The, I, I mean, a store that sells a given product will never be shown to you because, in some sense, never had enough clicks and the system be believes it's not good. But maybe it's just because it was not never presented to anyone or was presented too little and then didn't have enough exposure. So, but the first thing is that this bias does is that basically creates unfairness in the market itself because it's economical market. That's basically you, are, you have a platform that is a digital market and you have unfair that. So this is one thing. So basically you are, you are affecting uh, the small producers with respect to the big producers, the, the, the popular producers. The second problem is for the user, but this is called a two-sided market because you have the, the market of the producers and you have the market of the people. But And for the people, basically, you see popular things, and then that means mean that the people selling popular things get richer and the others get poorer. So basically, the rich get richer and poor get poorer behavior, so the Matthews effect. And... And then also th that may affect your user experience because, as we, uh, we said before, you are seeing things that many people like, but maybe it's not exactly what you like. And, and personalization doesn't solve that because basically the data doesn't have everything you want, everything you like. So basically the data is already biased to, to what the system shows you and not to what you really, uh, everything you like. And of course, this is very dynamic. So you have new items, new users, users change taste. So it's very hard for a system to keep learning all that and, and, and to learn. System do, do something called exploration algorithms. So basically they try to explore the taste of people showing sometimes random things or, or targeted things to see if they like them. But, but doing that is losing money because the probability of a, of a click that gets to a cell is lower. So, so systems don't do much of that. And that may mean that you are not really learning the world. And, and we can go back to the beginning. Basically, you are learning your own perception of the world. So these digital markets uh, basically are stuck in their own huge bubble. So they say like a large bubble, which is the union of all the bubbles of the people that is inside uh, in, interacting with that market. Well, then how... Do we counteract this? And also for the people who are building these systems or are working in organizations that are building these systems, what can we do to counteract this and make it a fairer place? Yeah, so so, so I have the uh, hypothesis that I, I, I think I, I, am, I already have some partial proof that basically knowing better your world, so let's say knowing exactly what your users want, that leads to, to to a better system, not only for the people, because basically you know exactly what the people want, but also because you can sell more because of you have more information. So in the long term, if you really learn your world well and how the world is changing, then um, you will have, say, a larger revenue. But what happens today? Today, today you have short-term goals. So basically, typically, the stock market will say, okay, what is, 
what is this year revenue? What is next next quarter revenue? And you need to do predictions. Uh, but for to to explore the world, to understand the world, you need to explore more. So you need to invest uh, traffic, and that means losing money today, but basically to earn more money tomorrow. So so the system should do more exploration until they realize that they finally catch up with the with the world and and learn everything, and then they will be in in, in a position to do like a better optimization to not only optimize the revenue, but also to optimize the user experience. And, and I think systems shouldn't be greedy and they have to optimize the user experience. Why? Because basically, if people don't like the system, they leave and then the revenue is hit too. So, the, so sometimes the, I think there's not too much common sense that user experiences should be the number one because if, if traffic goes down, then you lose money much, much more rapidly than trying to improve your revenue 1% today. Yeah. So talking about the users and the user experience, to what standard should we as users of these systems hold those systems? Yeah, this is a, it's a, it's a, another key question. Um, for example, if you have a, a let's say, uh, if you have a system to search for people, say LinkedIn or any other place for, for hiring people, we should... Uh, be able to audit them and see if the results are fair. For example, do you have enough women in the answers? Do you have enough minorities, at least in the percentage that they should be represented? For example, if you have so 10% immigrants, do you get 10% of immigrants in the answer? Of course, the, with the valid work permit, we, we always have to uh, follow the, the law. Uh, so these things are, are the things that are not very easy to do today, to audit this system and to, to basically be able to validate, uh, for example, uh, even claims, or for example, just uh, validate laws. So in some places there are, there are laws about, for example, gender parity. Um, one, one thing that, that I believe is that in the future, um, fairness of algorithms will be like, uh, like organic food. Basically, people is willing to pay more to build a better world, to basically to have a, what is call, uh, called the common good. So basically, you are contributing to the common good. And systems should do the same. Should, they should contribute to the common good, not to be greedy. And I feel that today, uh, many systems are, are too greedy. And you know, the most greedy systems, like and they have lost the traffic and they have died. So we have things like MySpace, or large search engines that existed in the past that doesn't exist uh, today because they really didn't worry about the user. Yeah, no, exactly. And so maybe to to segue a little bit, well, slightly, because we're talking about the users in like MySpace and that sort of thing. So one thing that I found really interesting about your work was the research that you conducted around activity bias and uh, kind of like the different websites that you analyzed in that context. Could you explain a bit more about that research and how activity bias affects content? Yes. So activity bias also can, can be called engagement bias is basically uh, how we behave as, as a group uh, in, a, in a website. For example, uh, we know because of the law of minimal effort uh, coined by George Sipf in the last century, in the beginning of the last century, uh, 
that that basically not all people is is active all the time. So if you take any any website that has say one million uh, users, uh, maybe only ten percent of them will be active users in in a segment of time, and that's why it's so important when the the website say, oh I have. I have 10 million users, but I have 1 million active users per month, for example. So basically to know how much activity is there, because uh, in, in, especially in social networks, people is just uh, what, what uh, Nelson, Nielsen defined, it, they are just lurking. And he had his own uh, participation rule in the internet that he said that basically 90% of the people are passive, uh, 9% basically react to other people that is just the 1% that basically are doing things, are putting new content, uh, doing opinions. And these are the influencers today. And uh, and the truth is that this is not something new. It's not something that, that happens in, only in the web. It has always been like that. It basically, it's like if you go to, to any country, uh, very few people are public faces. And because of the same, some of them want to be involved in politics or 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 in or in, or in uh, some kind of activism, and most people prefer no. I want to live my life. I don't want to be uh, there exposed. So this is not new. So basically, a lot of people is passive, and then um, very few people is active. So we look at, at this uh, at the related problem, which was how many people produce half of the content. So basically, for me, it's like the democracy of content. How many people produce half of the content? And we, we study a small data set from Facebook, and there we found that 7% of the people did half of the post. So a small percentage, less than 10% will be the, the active one. Then, then we look at a, a very large collection that, that is, is in Stanford that you can go and, 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 and use, and, and I think it's still being, being uh, collected, which are reviews in Amazon. And there we found that 4% of the people wrote half of the reviews. When I saw this result, I saw, I saw to, to my PhD student, I said, this cannot be right. I mean, 4% of the people have time to write half of the reviews. And we checked the results and, 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 and was right. And then I said, well, the only way that this may happen is that they are being paid to do that. So basically, maybe some of them are false. And, uh, and by coincidence, so I don't, I, I, I cannot know if Amazon read my work. One month later, after we published the result, uh, Amazon started to uh, sue uh, fake reviewers. And they are still doing that until today. That was in 2000, that, that was in 2015. And basically there are many reviews that are false because they are being paid by someone to, to have a better uh, number of stars. Um, we even uh, check uh, if you check the quality of the review, this 4% will go down to 2.5% if you take the quality of the reviews in account. So basically, 2.5% of the people wrote the best half of the reviews using some proxies on, on, on review quality. Then also, we, we, if we had access to, to run the algorithms in a very large collection of Twitter of 2009, so at that time, Twitter really gave uh, to a German institution, gave uh, the whole collection of Twitter, so it was not that big like today. But the interesting thing is that it was uh, everything, everything. And there we found that 2% of the people do half of the tweets. 
here is not surprise. It's even more skewed. But but I think here uh, ego and 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 basically the this participation rule of Nielsen works. Like like some people wants to be there, uh, be leaders uh, and be very visible and 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 basically have many followers because uh, either they want to impact or either they are insecure and then they want to feel that they have many followers. I don't know. That depends on the cognitive biases of every person. And then we also check all the Wikipedia data. You know, all the Wikipedia traffic is completely public, so anyone can use that. And, and, and it's a pity because it should be used more. But there we, we found that basically 2,000 people, which is less than 0.1% of the editors, wrote the first half of English Wikipedia. And those were paid, of course. And maybe thanks to them, we have Wikipedia today because I, I know that most people will not contribute to something is empty. So if you say to someone, write in this encyclopedia that is empty, no one will do that. You need to have at least uh, something that is half full and then all the optimists will start contributing and that's what happened, right? That's why we have to Wikipedia today. But in the end, like, what are the implications of this? for the content that we consume on the web as users? Like, what does this mean, you know, like very concretely? Well, con concretely, it, it means that basically we are reading uh, the content of the people that try to influence. But we are not reading the content of all the people. So basically, it's not really, it's not really the wisdom of crowds. So at some point, I, I was uh, like a big defender of the wisdom of crowds. But the truth is that it's more like the wisdom of a few. So, for example, how many popular people you have in Twitter and, and, and those are followed by most of the people. I think there was a number there like like, like uh, 50% of the people follow like 1% of the people, something like that. There's a number there. It's a very skew. And this shows how our world uh, works, like like. Uh, the politicians, the leaders we have, it's a very small percentage of the world and they decide for us. And many times they don't decide in the right way. And you, you, can, you, you may think that the democracy solves solve this problem, but if you see in today in many elections, the, the, uh, the abstention is very high. So, so even when you have uh, important things to decide, like for example, the referendum two days ago in Chile, um, 49% of the people didn't vote. So, so we are basically a lot of people, also I think the young people, see that the system is not working and they don't even want to vote to change that. And partly the reason I think is because they don't have the right leaders. They don't find the right person that says, I want to change things and I want to make a better world. And I guess in Sweden that may happen when Greta becomes old enough to be a politician. I don't know. But we don't have this kind of people too much in the world to, to change things, right? So because I think a lot of people, young people are seeing climate change, are seeing uh, uh, xenophobia, they're seeing uh, racism, and they are different from the previous generation. They, they want to change things. They want to build a more fair world, but they, are, they cannot have a voice. And this is something good about social networks. Social networks are providing a platform for voice to be heard. And many countries that that the social networks are really used a lot, like say something close to you, Turkey, 
is because that's the only way that for people to, to, to express themselves because the media is also controlled by the dominant groups in most countries. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we're kind of nearing the end of our, our time here. That went actually really fast. Um, but I'm wondering if there's any closing words or even a call to action that you want to give to people knowing this and all the information that you just shared. So maybe I can try to say a few things that, that people can do when you, you did this question before, but maybe we can expand it. So, so the first thing I would say is not to be pessimistic and, and believe that nothing can be done. Because this will be like, a, like saying we cannot solve the problem. I'm sure a lot of people have seen the social dilemma and then they don't know what to do. And I think there are many things we can do, but we need to, to be to be strong, <laughs> to have a lot of will to do these things. But the second thing, the second thing I would say is that that be aware of of your personal bubble. So, for example, now uh, Apple gives you um, a per- the percentage of time that you use every week in every device, which is something very good because it makes you more aware of how much you are using these systems. And we have to do like we did with the kids in the past, like how many hours per TV you could have. Here we need to do the same. And also, for example, uh, how many places you go. If you go always to the same place, it means that you, have, you don't have no diversity. And, and then how much time, uh, what I publish, what is the goal of my publishing? Is just to waste my time, like, uh, like laughing? Or I'm trying to contribute with something important to other people. Do you interact with the content of your network, of your friends, and so on? This is something like be aware of what you are really doing and then at least uh, using your time well if you don't want to spend less time there. If you realize that you have you are spending too much time, you have to do like an internet diet. So internet diet means, okay, I will restrict the time of using internet every day. And, and really, you have to resist the temptation. My first um, mobile phone was a BlackBerry. I was looking at the BlackBerry all the time. And I was very happy to be able to be connected to internet in my hands. But at, at some point, I said, I cannot live in function of this device. And I said, okay, I will not look at the device um, in, uh, after 10 minutes after every time I look. And I did that, and now I look at uh, not even 10 minutes because now it's not an addiction. Sometimes happens ha- half an hour, I don't look at my phone. If you see some young people that they cannot leave the phone from their hands, you have a problem. Because basically you cannot live without your phone, right? <laughs> and this is an addiction, like any drug. Um, f- f- another thing is important is, is like, Try to be, to don't fool yourself. And if you are really looking at radical content, like uh, like radical political content, or, or for example, uh, uh, that the earth is flat, or conspiracy theories, or that COVID doesn't exist, try to 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 say, okay, let's look at another opinion, just in case I, I'm, I'm being radical. The problem is that radical people don't realize they're radical until it's too late. Uh, for example, you can always use. Uh, search engines like like Dr. Go and Quant that have more privacy and and then the results are not personalized and this is good because personalization basically just uh, diminishes your 
your bubble. So your echo chamber gets smaller because your historic data is used. Um, when you look at the screen, try to, to, to fight against this nudging and, for example, read everything, look at everything, or, or look for other places. Um, and whatever you read, try to be a septic. Not everything that, that aligns with your belief is correct. Uh, sometimes I see news that I say, this is, this is impossible, this is not real. And they're real. And sometimes I see news that they say, oh, finally this happens, and they're false. So we need to be more careful because now with also with deep learning, even, even videos can be fake and they, 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 they can believe real. Oh, this politician said that and was a fake. And, and finally, and I already said, I think this is the most important one. The only way to solve this problem is to be aware of that. So if you are aware of the time that you're inter internet, also you need to be aware of, of your cognitive biases, because basically that's the only way to be a better person is to, to be aware of, of, of your deviations. So basically there are some deviations that are not good and then you should fight against that. I, I, when I realized that I was working on bias and, and I did the conscious effort of, of, of checking, for example, how I say things, I realized that, that many times I, I was using words that I shouldn't use because for me, we're normal to use, but but if you think on on the on the origin of that word, the word uh, had a, the wrong origin, and and there are still many words in English that, for example, end with a man, and some of them are are are, are very hard to to change. But for example, instead of talking about uh, men, you should talk, talk about the humankind or or not mankind or a human being, not. Men, so there are many ways, subtle things that that, that uh, old people don't, don't realize because they have been using them for say fifty years. So I don't blame them until someone tells them, "Look, uh, maybe you should change and, and use this different word." So, so awareness, I think, is the first thing, is the most important thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Ricardo. That was uh, that was really great and insightful. Um, maybe like to close off, if people want to learn more about you or maybe read more about the research that you are doing uh, and have done, where should they go? Yes. So 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 I have a website. Uh, it's uh, Baeza, my first surname dot cl because I'm from originally from Chile. So you can go to my the website and there are many publications there. I also write in Medium, so you can you can uh, search the web and, and find my Medium page. And I write both in English and in Spanish, so for people that read Spanish. Uh, also, I'm um, now I'm quite active in, in Twitter. I was not that active in Twitter, but because of a work of, of on, on COVID data science, I became active, and now and I'm using that for other purposes like research and, and my. Uh, my ID is uh, Polar Bear by. So at the beginning was kind of, a, I wanted to be a lurker at the beginning in Twitter. I was uh, like, I wanted to be passive. I became active, but I, I keep, I keep that uh, Polar polar Bear by because uh, I'm explorer at heart and, and, and I guess Polar Bears are always exploring the Arctic. Um, I think these are the three places, and of course, you can always check my LinkedIn entry, where also I post things about uh, artificial intelligence, uh, about data science, and, and that's completely public. So, so basically, Twitter, LinkedIn, 
my website and Medium are completely public so you can read uh, about my work. Great. Well, thank you so much, Ricardo. It was a pleasure. No, thank you. And that was it for this episode of the Human-Centered AI Podcast. If you like this episode or have any feedback, do not hesitate to reach out to us at deus.ai. Thank you for tuning in and see you next time.